Hello, listeners, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Evoking the Sublime podcast. My name is Shay, and I will be your host on this adventure. So, I wanted to give a quick, very quick introduction as to what this podcast is about. I started to think about this idea of doing a different podcast on the side from the main one um, at Swordchomp called Chompcast. I decided to do something a little bit different because I felt like something was missing from that podcast. Not that there's anything wrong with it. I just felt like there was a creative outlet that I wasn't getting entirely from the main podcast. And that comes with the nature of there being four different guys giving opinions. So back in October, I started thinking, well, what do I want to do? What would be so different from what we do at our main podcast that would allow me to create a standalone podcast on the side and it'd be interesting? I threw around some ideas and I ended up coming up with this idea of detailing the history of one video game per episode. I looked around online and I couldn't find any podcasts quite like this idea I had. Not to say they don't exist, because I'm sure they do. And not to say that someone doesn't already do this. But I couldn't find anything. So I started writing scripts for different games and they revolved around some of my favorite indie games I've played in the last 10 years and some of what I think are the best video games to have come out in the past 10 years. And I found myself having a ton of fun just researching the creation and history of each one of these video games. And that really inspired me to continue with this idea. So, after months of working on getting some theme music, getting a logo designed, and getting a few scripts written, and a few ideas recorded, I finally am able to release the first episode of Evoking the Sublime. Now, apart from my personal history of why I started this, today, you will be listening to What Remains of Edith Finch, the history and the creation of this video game. This video game was super impactful for myself personally and the rest of the guys that I do the main podcast with. I was elated to make this my first episode, but the problem being is when I looked online, I didn't find much information regarding this game. I was super shocked because it was up for multiple awards last year and it was a highly coveted video game. So naturally, I wrote what I could, which was not a lot. And I did a Hail Mary and I sent an email to Giant Sparrow, hoping to glean some information from them at the very least, and if not, get an interview with Ian Dallas, the creative director of both What Remains of Edith Finch and Giant Sparrow Studios. I was fortunate enough to 
be able to interview him. And it was absolutely a great, great pleasurable time. Um, he's a very nice and generous man. And he had a ton of really great information. So without further ado, here is our interview together, Ian Dallas and myself, on What Remains of Edith Finch. Enjoy. Hello listeners, uh, welcome, my name is Shay. I'm here today with Ian Dallas, the creator of What Remains of Edith Finch. How are you today, Ian? Great, great. Just got back from a uh, four-month world tour uh, focused on food, so happy to be back in Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a shame. Uh, I would love to stay for four months on a tour of food. Oh, that was good. It's just four months of, uh, of eating, you know, new things every day uh, can can wear on you a little bit after a while. So I'm, I'm happy to get back to something like a routine. That's true. That's true. That's true. If you're constantly traveling and you're looking for a little bit of consistency, I can I can understand you wanting to go back home. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, not unlike, uh, you know, our game, What Remains of Edith Finch. Like, it's, uh, you know, a collection of crazy novel experiences that works really well for a certain duration. And, you know, I think for us, yeah. like, about two to three hours is, is kind of a sweet spot where doing that for 10 hours or four months or whatever, you know, could, could be a little uh, draining. Yeah, that's, that's a really good metaphor, actually. And that, I think, can be a good segue. I can, I can make it that work. Yeah. So, and after attempting to look into the history and backstory of what remains of Edith Finch, I was really sad to see that not much history exists online. So that being said, I was just curious, how did you come up with the basic idea of the game? Uh, so the initial premise was what, uh, like exploring the feeling that I remember growing up. Uh, when I was scuba diving, looking at the bottom of the ocean, sloping away into like an infinite darkness. And, you know, essentially what it feels like to be in a space where you are very small and kind of overwhelmed. Uh, and there's this simultaneous mm -hmm. elements of, you know, the scene being very beautiful, but also, you know, a little bit uh, threatening. So, you know, what it feels like to be in the presence of the sublime and the game initially began as a scuba diving simulator uh and then you know kind of went off the rails from there that's crazy i don't know if i would have I, I i can see that with the the very first backstory um of the 10 year old girl when she's in the ocean hunting the seal but I would never have expected that to be a scuba diving simulator. That's awesome. Yeah, no, that uh, the shark sequence you're talking about in Molly's story was you know, kind of what survived yeah. of that initial uh, premise. That's really cool. Yeah, that's that's awesome, and that kind of that gives a a little bit of clarity for 
why Molly went that direction where she where she went where you ended up wanting it to go as a, as as yourself as Ian. That's really cool. Yeah. So did you did you do a lot of scuba diving when you were younger and that kind of that's that's essentially what prompted you to the beginnings of this game? Uh yeah, I mean I did a fair amount of scuba diving when I was growing up in Washington state. That was something that my dad and I would do on weekends as a father-son bonding thing. And you know, I think more than than that, it was the experience of being in a place like Washington state where you're surrounded by, you know, these kind of primeval natural elements and, you know, whether it's at the bottom of the ocean or in the middle of a forest. Uh, that feeling of of the power of nature and you know the small fragile uh, nature of being a human uh, was was something that was a you know strong part of my experience as a child and you know I wanted to make a game that evoked some of those same feelings. Yeah, I I can see that. That makes perfect sense. I honestly think you've captured that really well with this game. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's it's great. Yeah, of course. You're welcome. Um, so each character, as we've kind of alluded to, is very compelling and believable, yet tragic. It's almost to me, when I whenever I played, it reminded me almost of a Shakespearean play or mythology where mm-hmm. everyone kind of is doomed. So were you influenced by either <laughs> A Shakespeare, like any type of Shakespeare or mythology when creating the characters of Edith Finch? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say that there's a conscious... Yeah, I mean, there's no conscious Shakespeare, although it's funny that you mentioned that uh, because Shakespeare and Homer are the kind of core influences that I had kind of growing up uh, artistically. Uh, you know, terms like narrative and, and tone and, and whatnot. When I was in high school, I used to listen to audiobooks of Shakespeare like over and over and over again. So particularly uh, Macbeth and uh, and Lear, you know, I listened to dozens of times. So you know, I don't know if there's any like specific traces of that that I would point to, but it's you know, kind of a a pall that it casts over everything, and, and certainly like you know, word choices and uh, and characters. Um, come from there and you know i think i was just watching actually uh over over the vacation all the miyazaki movies again and something that i was struck by that was really prominent in shakespeare too is that all of the villains are really interesting characters like i was also watching the disney movies uh because the next project i'm doing is kind of focused on animation and in the disney movies the character the villains tend to be you know very simple um you know, kind of one-dimensional characters who are just evil for the sake of it. Uh, but in Miyazaki and in Shakespeare, you know, the villains are often the most interesting characters and are not really, like, typical villains. They're, you know, characters in their own right. So I think there's some of that, hopefully, right, they in Edith Finch as well, where there's, you know, it's not a story with a good guy and a bad guy. Yeah, it's it's not quite as clear when you when you're playing Edith Finch if there are good guys and bad guys there uh, to me they're just these complex characters and they each have these stories and they're just conveying them to you in a completely unfiltered way leaving it for the 
the player to kind of interpret their story as it will be and to kind of devise this if there is a morality there, if there is innate good or evil in each one of these characters. So I, it, the, each character is complex and interesting in their own way, and that's what makes this game work so well, I think. So my next question is then with each character in What Remains of Edith Finch being uniquely told their story, with different mechanics and narrative styles specifically, where did the inspiration come from to tell each character's story in a very distinct way? Hmm. Um, I mean, I think some of it goes back to just the central premise of the game, which was to, you know, have this collection of very different characters, uh, you know, in a family and having each of those stories have different game mechanics felt like a good way of expressing the uniqueness of those characters. I think it sort of naturally emerged out of, you know, each of those stories having a different emotional feel to them. You know, it felt like, well, you know, they should have their own, you know, means of control and, you know, kind of game mechanic system underpinning that. Uh, It wasn't something that we said, oh, we should, you know, definitely try to have different mechanics every 30 seconds. Uh, It was just kind of the way things evolved. Uh, Also, you know, one of our goals with this game was to, uh, you know, convey the sense of exploration and that you, like as Edith, are discovering, you know, aspects of your family history and, you know, physical uh, elements of this house and to keep players feeling like, you know, they were uh, exploring this place and that they didn't know what might be around the corner. So having the game mechanics constantly evolve was a way of you know, kind of reinforcing that feeling for the player, like making that part of their lived experience that, you know, just as they were, right. you know, kind of uh, discovering how the controls works, you know, like Edith was discovering these stories. That's really interesting that it wasn't initially kind of a conscious effort for you and your team to go that route, because when you play it, it feels like, each one of these was methodically thought out from the beginning. That's <laughs> cool how it kind of evolved. Yeah, no, the the whole game really evolved, uh, you know, in a very similar way to the, you know, when you look at the Finch house, you know, this is like an organic evolved yes. architectural structure, uh, you know, and then the fact that the game feels somewhat contiguous uh, on the outside for players coming into it fresh, you know, I think is because the core, uh, you know, kind of tonal goals in the beginning of, you know, evoking the sublime and suggesting family and, and all these elements mm-hmm. were there. And so there's like a, a yeah. tonal through line, but then also just a whole ton of playtesting that was done uh, late in the process, you know, watching yeah. players go through and shaving off uh, a lot of the rough edges. So, you know, it, it feels somewhat uh uniform because things were kind of made to be that way you know and in some cases brutally shoehorned into the structure that eventually evolved um you know it's kind of like like trimming a um uh, like a topiary where you have this chaotic bush that has grown in whatever way you know the bush wants to 
But, you know, when you come in with a pair of uh, shears, you can, you know, eke out an elephant or, you know, an aardvark or whatever it is that this topiary, you know, kind of is suggesting. Yeah. I like that. I like that metaphor a lot. That's perfect. Yeah, that's exactly... That, that That's what I think of when I play that game, just kind of how, like, it seems like there's... You look at the house from the ground level, it seems like just this overwhelming kind of leaning structure but there is there is a rhyme and reason as you explore that house and you go to each journey uh, to learn about each character it's perfect yeah so i want to talk about a very specific backstory in this game and i want to specifically talk about lewis um it was to me and to the other guys it was lewis backstory in the can in the cannery was one of the best sequences in video gaming in 2017. Um, for the listeners who are unfamiliar, you control a character named Lewis who is chopping fish. You control him with a left analog stick. As you control a daydream sequence Lewis is having with the right analog stick, he is hallucinating from drugs while he's working at his mundane job, imagining, imagining these grandiose stories for himself. So how did you come up with that that idea to control two separate sequences at the same time while experiencing this cre- incredible story of Lewis? Uh, well, that story is unique in the game in that it actually comes more or less intact from an existing short story. There's a short story called The Coronation okay. of Thomas Shap, who uh, was written by Lord Dunsany in, I think, 1910. And it's pretty similar. I mean, there's no cannery or fish shopping or or anything like that in the story, but it is about a guy who goes to work every day in London, you know, takes a train in and, you know, starts to imagine this other world, you know, of which he is the king uh, while holding down this kind of menial sales job. And so we kind of transplanted that into our world uh, and looked for things, you know, in terms of the job that would evoke uh, you know, Washington State, the Pacific Northwest, uh, and elements of the sublime. And, uh, you know, we eventually settled on fish chopping. But the idea of doing the kind of left stick controls one side and right stick controls the other side uh, just kind of emerged naturally from the story that we were looking at. Like, we had this central premise of, okay, there's this guy who has two worlds going on. You know, how might players interact with you know that kind of experience and you know holding the uh the joysticks you know in our hand it's like oh why don't we do it you know left and right and uh and then everything kind of fell into place from there yeah it's it's yeah it's i don't know how to describe it's one of the most unique experiences i've ever had gaming just trying to wrap my mind initially around that because the way the sequence plays out you know you're just chopping the fish and then all of a sudden like just this picture appears and me as a player i didn't know what to do with it and i was like <laughs> do i move in there or do i watch this and then i started <laughs> playing and i was like oh my god that you control both of these and then you and then you kind of realize what you guys were going for is exactly what happens you kind of just hold and you just keep chopping you don't even think about the side anymore just the way it happened was absolutely organic 
and I loved it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so, it was uh, a terrible, yeah. terrible experience for most of development. But you know, we did a lot of playtests and just kept chipping away yeah. at it. Uh, you know, and like a lot of stories in the game, it's something that is a it's almost like a bubble. You know, it's a very delicate experience that if there's any element of frustration, you know, it's like a house of cards. Like it just collapses, and you know, then players like you. In each story, we're throwing people into, you know, this very novel interactive scheme and then also asking them to pay attention to a story and read text and all this stuff. And so if they get frustrated with the controls or how weird things are, then they start blaming us as the developers. It's like, ah, oh, you created this mess. And like, yes, we did create a mess intentionally confusing for you, uh, but, you know, hopefully gave you the tools to figure that out. And like the fish shopping in particular uh, took, you know, several years of different versions of it to finally you know kind of figure out oh it should be you know this way and, and a lot of it was just oh it should be simpler was the answer um it's surprising even now how simple what you're doing as a player is on the left stick and how simple it is on the right stick but as a player you know it's like we think of ourselves as very good multitaskers so to be like oh we'll take a normal mechanic and just split it in half so you have 50 percent of your attention for one 50 percent for the other but it's actually more like 25% um, because we're such bad multitaskers in reality. And so, you know, we just kept simplifying the mechanics more and more and more. Uh, but then I think we ended up with something that players, you know, have really responded positively to, even though if you were to play just the left side or just the right side, it would be a really unsatisfying experience. Uh, there's something kind of magical. It's like a peanut butter and chocolate thing. When you put them together that you know it works somehow in a way that you could not have predicted until you actually experienced that's interesting because that's something i didn't really think about is how little each side requires as its separate entity but when you put them together they are so satisfying in that way and that's cool that you guys were able to figure out despite all the the hardships i'm sorry you guys went through all that <laughs> that that sounds frustrating oh, it's actually, i mean but... it's a it's an adventure. Like making games is, uh, you know, an, an interesting experience, partly because of all of those unforeseen challenges. Uh, you know, I think one of the things we also learned in making that uh, was that there's a lot that's going on that's not actually on the screen. Uh, you know, in, in Lewis's story, the player is thinking about Lewis and, you know, perhaps identifying with him and, you know, aware that this is Edith's brother. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, kind of questions that they are proposing and perhaps, you know, answering as they're playing the story. So, you know, again, when you look at it, it feels so simple from a mechanic standpoint, but actually, you know, looking at holistically what the experience that the player is going through, you know, a lot of that is, uh, you know, stuff that they're bringing with them, like from their own life and from the story that they just played five minutes ago in the game. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, hard making a game when it's not done yet you know it's much easier to answer questions as the pieces come into place but you know as a game developer you don't really have that luxury you have to start with you know kind of nothing and then and then build it up and, and slowly tear it back down again as you refine it that makes sense yeah i yeah i think the just really quickly touch on a point you made like the the simple mechanics complement kind of the heavy the heavy content or the heavy material so well because i i 
I think that's what also makes that sequence work so well is just I can imagine each person in their life having one of those menial experiences where they just imagine something so much greater in their lives happening. And unfortunately, Lewis's story, as per most of the Finch's story, ends up unfavorably for <laughs> Lewis. Yeah, it's, it's but, a kind of victory, but maybe not the one that he, he would have uh, expected. Right. And, and at the end of the day, that's what's, what makes this game work so well. It allows the player to kind of interpret what they just witnessed and take away what they will from it at the end of the day. And I think that's what's mm-hmm. beautiful about the sequence. It's fantastic. Um, to switch gears a little bit, actually, so I w- one of the few things I did read online was that you had confirmed um, Milton, one of your characters, actually appearing in your first game, The Unfinished Swan, uh, via a, I believe it was a Reddit post. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that is that that is confirmed? Okay. So yeah. my question is with one of the characters from what remains of Edith Finch Milton showing up in the Unfinished Swan, is that will you continue to consciously connect future games to each other, or was this just an experiment <laughs> for um you to yeah, I mean, I think it, it depends on, on the games and the characters, right? Uh, but with the case of Edith Finch and, and Milton, you know, from The Unfinished Swan, it became apparent midway through uh, making Edith Finch that in some ways we were making the same game, uh, that I, as a creative director, just have certain kind of obsessions uh, that recur, uh, like this, you know, the experience of confronting the unknown, uh, you know, being a pretty prominent one. And yeah, it just kind of made sense that there be this uh, this crossover between them because you know I think at a at a very fundamental level there are a lot of similarities between them. And so in future games, you know, if there are similarities uh, between them, which you know I would not be surprised to find, uh, then yeah, maybe maybe other characters <laughs> or, uh, or houses will uh, will pop up. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, I. I can see that, and reading reading that, I would have ne- never put two and two together, I don't think. So it was really cool to see that someone else figured that out, and then to see it confirmed, that was a really cool crossover. I think like more games need to do that, do kind of a like a very sly um, Easter egg of sorts, <laughs> like crossover between games, because it's it's the same developer at the end of the day, and like you said, you have certain things you are inclined to gravitate towards. So I think that's perfect. I really like it. Yeah. Um, And kind of piggybacking off that question, what lessons did you carry over from the Unfinished Swan, which is the first game that you released under Giant Sparrow? I would say the biggest lesson is uh, just being unsurprised that the game is in such a terrible shape for so long uh you know when you're making something that you're you know our goal is to make something that players have never seen before you know part of that means that we've never seen that before either and so it's very hard to predict in the beginning you know how these things should be structured 
and what the problems might be. And so, you know, watching playtests or even, you know, listening to other people on the team talk about their feelings, uh, you know, it's pretty dispiriting for a long time that these things, you know, even if they have what's, what feel like interesting ideas to you, uh, you know, are just not fun, not clear, not easy. And, you know, being open to the idea that they will be that way for a long time and then suddenly it will click and then you know, you'll solve one problem that will let you solve other problems, you know, and, uh, you know, it's kind of like a, a downhill slope thing, hopefully, uh, you know, like a snowball rolling downhill, uh, that those kind of things are hard to predict, but you trust that when you work, you know, long enough and hard enough, you will eventually burst through, you know, and I think on the unfinished swan, it was, you know, such a shock that things turned out that way. Uh, you know, this time around, it was a little bit less surprising uh, in a good way, where I felt like, yeah, yeah, the stuff like looks really terrible right now. I, I understand that, but I also like I, I had more hope that they would get better. Um, and, and in most cases, they did. And in a few cases, you know, we had to cut uh, pieces. But that also, you know, is, is a good lesson from before where you just, you know, start to get a better gut sense of the things that, you know, don't look good now and probably will never look good. Uh, but that's always tricky. That's going to be a really difficult aspect of the whole development process. It's just you may have these parts that you really like or are married to, but at the end of the day, they don't quite fit in with the overall scheme of what you're going for. Yeah, and, and you know, in the beginning, you don't really know what the game is yourself. You know, it takes a while, you know, sitting with this thing and, and you know, kind of playing with it every day and imagining, you know, what it's like to be in that world to really key in on what are the things that are most critical, uh, you know, which babies do you have to throw overboard? Yeah. <laughs> That's fair, yeah. Um, I like that. I like that metaphor. Um, right. It's like so, me in a lifeboat, you know, as a you know, 39 year old man with, yeah. uh, you know, 50 other small infants and, you know, not all of us can make it to the yes. island. So we're just, that's the job is yes. throwing babies overboard every so often. Yeah. Just mm, see ya. You, you know, you just don't, you don't make it, you don't make it to the next <laughs> <Yeah>. island. <laughs> I like that. Um, at at what point did you start involving the rest of the crew who worked on what remains of Edith Finch? Was it early on, or did you do a lot of kind of personal writing and development of where you wanted to go with the story initially, and then bring the crew in? Uh, I mean, it kind of it varied for each of the stories, but uh, generally we would, um, you know, I guess as designers be working on pretty crude prototypes uh just messing around with ideas or settings or um you know kind of potential uh movement thing usually like we would start with a mechanic of like how what would be an interesting thing for the player to do because that's the hardest thing to figure out usually like there's a million great ideas for stories or characters that are floating around but not as many ideas for interesting you know, player actions. So, uh, you know, I think in most stories we would start with that of like, what, what might the player do? And we had a, a freelance game designer, Ben Esposito, who worked on the Infinite Swan and is now working on his own game, Donut County. 
who was part of the team and he would come in like one day a week and work on prototypes. So he was a big part of that process where when we got stuck on something, we could just throw it over to Ben, you know, for some fresh eyes. But uh, yeah, usually we would, you know, kind of noodle on these mechanical prototypes. Sometimes we would involve the team, you know, if we needed a certain animation for a prototype or, you know, some, some piece of tech, but hopefully, you know, the early prototypes were just, you know, designers not inconveniencing the rest of the team. And then once we had something that was promising, which, you know, I mean, that could be a week or it could be several months, uh, you know, but it felt like something that we wanted to, you know, to move along, then we would start getting the other departments involved um, in, you know, whatever way kind of made sense, uh, you know, until we built out uh, you know, something like a complete story, uh, like a beginning, middle, and end, and a sense of the progression, and uh, you know, all of this would be very, very rough um, until we had that. Until we had something where we felt like um, not necessarily a, a story in the sense of you know we knew exactly who this character was, uh, you know, in, in all the dialogue, but a story in you know the concept of beginning, middle, and end, like we knew where it was going to go and what the pieces might be. Uh, and then the other departments would get more and more involved until we got to, you know, kind of a actual production stage where the artists would make their, you know, giant lists of all the little props that need to be modeled and all that. But we, you know, tried to hold off as long as we possibly could uh, from getting everyone else involved, um, you know, just because it takes a lot of time as soon as everyone is involved to coordinate all that. And you don't want to throw things away that people spend a lot of time working on. So it was always a balancing act. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, it seems like it's just a, a ton of brainstorming. And as you piecemeal, what is going to make in? And then finally, when you have kind of all the pieces like a jigsaw, then you can, you know, kind of start putting the whole thing together. And it sounds like to me, and I guess I don't really know, it kind of the end the end part where everything starts being like built up kind of falls into place a lot more quickly than the brainstorming idea or the brainstorming it's definitely more deterministic i mean it's a thing that even if it takes three months to do it you can usually predict at the beginning how long it's going to take where you know the design phase is much less uh, predictable uh, and then you know sometimes when the you know technology stuff, for example, would come on, we would realize, oh, we can't actually do you know what we wanted to do here, and so we'll need to adjust. Uh, you know, so there there is a bit of back and forth as well at you know every stage. Interesting, yeah, and that, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you got to figure out what works at the end of the day. That's cool. So, uh, and I owe you congratulations and the rest of the team at giant sparrow because you guys won the award for best narrative at the 2017 game awards which is yeah awesome. what, whatever that good. award means yeah. uh we we sure won it <laughs> it means you guys did a good job that's what exactly <laughs> what it means it's well earned um i i want to i you know just kind of like an unfiltered uh uh motion not necessarily motion but like feeling how does it feel knowing that it was stacked against some of the best narratives in gaming in the last few years, including your game, and you guys won it. I mean, feel like that you feel vindicated for building this game, or is it just it's just an award? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I guess my initial reaction was surprise. Uh, you know, I didn't expect that uh, that we would win it, uh, and you know, I was happy, I guess, to to have won the thing. But then, uh, you know, I, I myself am on a couple of juries for other kinds of awards, and so at this point, I'm very jaded about the whole process because you know I've seen how juries work and it's not necessarily like the best thing is going to win it's often like a much more strategic thing of like you know there may be you know several games that a lot of people feel very strongly about positively or negatively and then there might be another game where everybody feels like kind of positive about and no one feels that negative about it and that's one that wins because it just doesn't have anybody like rooting against it so yeah, it's not as divisive. Yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, often with these awards, it's also really unclear who was the one on the jury voting for it. Uh, like how many people were involved. You know, like I think the Golden Globes is a great example. You know, everybody knows the Golden Globes. Nobody really knows the Hollywood Foreign Press Corps. You know, that's the group that's actually like selecting these awards. So I don't know. I mean, it's all it's all fun. You know, we're happy for the recognition and we're happy that people really like it. But, uh, you know, it's um, it's difficult knowing who to listen to, uh, you know, for criticism or praise. And, you know, should you go to Twitter and just like listen to the random, uh, you know, yays and nays? Uh, it's I don't know. I mean, it's all very arbitrary. Uh, but, you know, it's it's nice when when things break in your favor. Right, exactly. And I think I think that's a really cool thing you just described because us as consumers, we a lot of us are driven by I think ratings and word of mouth what people say is a good game or necessar- not necessarily the most favorable experience in a game. And for me, hearing about what remains of Edith Finch was completely word of mouth. But on the flip side of that, I you know I'm not a game developer, so I've never really thought about, you know, who doles out these awards, who decides it, and, you know, how, how do, you, do you take it in stride? How, how do you take it exactly? And that's, it's something that, you know, for me personally, I've never thought about. So it's really interesting to hear that from you, that, like, there's a whole other side of critiques and awards that most people don't even probably think about at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me personally, the awards are a lot less meaningful than the nominations. Like in any given category, you know, like for the Oscars or whatever it is, uh, you know, like the top five, that's probably like those are probably like the five best things in that category. The very top one, uh, you know, like in, in some years, it's really clear. You know, some years it's like, yes. That is definitely, you know, Snow White should win Best Animated Film or whatever, you know, it's up for. But you know, a lot of other years, it's not as clear. So I don't know. The nominations feel a lot more valid to me. Okay, that makes sense. I appreciate that. I, I'm still, I'm still happy you won. <laughs> to be honest with you, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, for oh, I'm you, still happy. Uh, I, just, I take it with a massive yeah. grain of salt. I I can appreciate that completely. Yeah. So one one aspect that we talked about a little bit ago was that that I think is so great about what remains of Edith Finch 
is that there are many stories that lend themselves to the players to develop his or her own lessons or morals. Looking back, what would you say is your favorite story or moral from the game? Hmm. Um... Yeah, I don't I don't know that I have like that I would say I have a favorite moral, but in terms of stories, the one that's probably closest to my heart is Calvin's story, uh, mostly because I feel like that's an experience that I can only imagine this game doing. Uh, you know, the idea of spending years uh as a game developer making a story that is over for a lot of players, you know, in like under a minute or two. You know, it was kind of absurd, but you know, I think for that particular story, it just made sense that everything was really condensed, and it, um, you know, the the twin forces of really wanting something, but then also knowing that it might not be good for you, uh, you know, this is like a, a beautiful problem that we have as humans, and I love that we can tell a story about that, you know, that that connects with people, and that you know, is over in a minute or two. Right. Yeah. And the, the cool thing is it feels so important, even though in that minute or two that it happens because the characters feel so lifelike that that's what makes it work. And so you can, you can effectively make this one to two minute story and it can be affecting. And I think, I think that is one of the biggest takeaways from this game personally is that something doesn't need to be long and in-depth and very super specific for it to be affecting um, and to have a moral at the end of the day or to have a story that you can take something away from at the end of the day. Right, and I think, yeah. you know, in I, a lot I of our stories... Story. Right, like, they're more powerful because they're so brief. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that's probably why I'm drawn to what turned out to be our shortest story. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. I like it. Did did you have an overall moral that you wanted to convey to the player, or did you just want to kind of leave it and not necessarily ambiguous, but to give them the option of taking away what they do from the game? Yeah, I mean, I I don't really think in terms of morals. Uh, you know, my approach was much more, uh, you know, just looking at my own life and and remembering what it felt like to encounter the sublime and then, you know, trying my best to, you know, create moments that would evoke that for players. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, in terms of like specific things that I would hope players would take away from the game, uh, one of the things would be, you know, just to remind players that they themselves are going to die and to give them a chance to think a little bit about that, which is, you know, oddly, it's so obvious you know, that everybody knows this deep down, but, you know, nobody or very few people act like that is actually the case. So giving players a chance to, you know, encouraging them to, to think about that was, was definitely part of it. But, you know, more than anything, it was just trying to give players a feeling of the sublime. Um, yeah, that was, that was the overarching goal. No, I like it. And I, yeah, I I actually like both of those, like the sublime and they're like kind of reminding us of death. I feel like a lot in Western society, we just spend our time trying to forget that we are mortal at the end of the day. We try and kind of fill our day with all this stuff 
because we don't want to think about our own mortality when we're laying in bed at night. Yeah, no, I think, you know, every year it seems like we have more and more control over what, you know, we, we can consume or think about or be exposed to. And, you know, we just kind of naturally choose to surround ourselves with things that, you know, distract us from, you know, the, the impending death uh, that we have. So it's nice to be part of, you know, a pushback. The last, last question I have for you, and uh, this is a bit of a spoiler alert for all <laughs> listeners. Uh, so please be advised. At the end of What Remains of Edith Finch, it is revealed that Edith passes due to the complications with birth, but she leaves behind a son who is the sole surviving Finch family member. So there is a nice bittersweet end to the game. What happens to the poor boy? And if you can't say anything, <laughs> I'm completely okay with that. I, I, I I've uh, been curious yeah, though no, I, ever since I've ended the game. I have no idea. Uh, you know, we we left it deliberately open, but you know, I, I think it's um, it's something that we ourselves like never really came up with a satisfying. Oh, this is you know his story. It was, you know, like at at one point I feel like he used to be in a wheelchair. Uh, we wanted, like, we have so little time (laughs) with, with her son, uh, you know, just like a few seconds at the beginning of the game and a few seconds at the end. And we really wanted players to remember that it was the same person. So we tried to, you know, come up with a character design that would be really distinctive and memorable. So initially, uh, they were in a wheelchair and then by the time we built the cemetery, you know, and the artists had added all these like crazy stairs and things. Uh, people looked at the environment and were like, there's no way someone in a wheelchair would get down that. <laughs> and so it was like, all right, just, we'll, fine, just we'll put jaw, him in Yeah, riding down, that'd be terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So all I know about this guy really is that, uh, you know, he used to be in a wheelchair, now he's in a cast. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it was meant to suggest that, you know, things have happened to him recently that, you know, have been perhaps life-threatening. So this idea of a Finch curse is not you know, a purely academic concern for him. Um, but yeah, his, his future and past are, are, you know, pretty much up to the player, uh, you know, and, and what they imagine. Since it's, you know, part of this game is about the way that stories, you know, reveal uh, things to us, but they also, you know, kind of leave a lot of things on the margins or outside the margins that, uh, that we have to guess at. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, I think it's cool because it, in a way, if you do ever choose to go the route of including characters in other games again, I think he's a prime target because so little is known about him. He can just effectively slide into another video game. I, I think that that's perfect. So, yeah, that's, you know, Ian, that's perfect. Uh, I, I want to thank you for your time, first and foremost. I, um, it, this game. I, I won't I won't stroke you ego or brown nose too much. This game is fantastic. Um I loved it. I know the other guys I do my podcast with absolutely love this game. You did a great, great job, and I think there is so much that is said in this game in the short two hours that you play it. So thank you for your time and no, thank, thank you, you for this wonderful game and thank you to the rest of 
giant sparrow. I, I thank you guys so much for a great game. Oh, thanks. My pleasure. Our pleasure. <laughs> of course. Well, um, that's the end of the interview. Thank you to Ian. Thank you to Giant Sparrow. And uh, thank you to you, the listener. Take care. <laughs>